welcome to Coffee and Conservation, hosted by Dr. Beth Baker, Assistant Extension Professor in the Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Aquaculture at Mississippi State University. From water and soil to habitat and food production, Dr. Baker and her guests discuss the necessity and complexity of conservation in the U.S. All right, we're back for another edition of Coffee and Conservation with my friend and colleague, Dr. Mark McConnell. Welcome back again. Thank you. Happy to be here. Uh, Dr. McConnell is an assistant professor in the Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Aquaculture with a focal area in upland birds, uh, particularly quail. Particularly quail. Which is perfect because this edition of Coffee and Conservation is conservation for the quail obsessed. I was very happy to hear that talk. We should probably do one on the turkey obsessed too, because it's turkey season now, and those people are nuts. Uh, agree, turkey. Do you turkey, turkey hunt? Uh, technically, no. I'm really bad at it. I actually go out there with all the gear, but I'm so unsuccessful that I consider it just a walk in the woods. <laughs> Turkeys are far too smart. I think that's how my father-in-law turkey hunts. Um, I'm excited about the quail uh, edition today, though. Uh, I actually heard you speak a couple a week or so ago. Uh, at a field day, and I admittedly don't know that much about quail. Most people don't. There, There's not many of them around in a lot of areas. Most people have never seen one. But after hearing you talk, I'm never going to forget that quail, baby quail chicks are about the size of a bumblebee. When they hatch, yes. It was, just, it was just so cute. I was like, I'm never going to forget that. <laughs> you, you should hold them. I've banded the chicks, and they're absolutely just tiny. Yeah. Uh, okay, so this is exciting. How did you get into quail research? It's a good question. I uh, stumbled across a paper when I was uh, working in Louisiana and about quail management and got really excited and spoke to my mother about it shortly after and discovered that my grandfather was a, was a big quail hunter in North Louisiana where I'm from and I worked on a farm in the same area he used to hunt and after that I just couldn't figure out why there weren't quail and thought it was very possible to get more quail and I've been obsessed ever since. That's it's interesting how much uh, our grandparents influenced the work we do. <laughs> at least at least for me, when you say that, I'm like, yeah, my grandparents have a huge influence on the work that I do now. Well, it's funny. I actually never, actually never met him. He passed before I was born, but his brother, my great uncle, I was extremely close with. And, you know, he, he talked, he hunted with him. So while I was working on their farm, you know, he would talk about, yeah, there used to be a covey here or a covey there. And I'd be on a tractor all day going, every Eastern Meadowlark I saw, I was like, is that a quail? Uh, it never was, and, and I decided there mir had mirage in the field. <laughs> there had to be pseudo quail is what we call them. Yeah, there had to be a better way to do farming uh, that was beneficial to quail. And mm -hmm. so I spent the last decade of my career focusing on that. And in that last decade, you've also had some mentors that have left a legacy in quail research, right? I was very fortunate to come here and work for uh, Dr. Wes Berger, who. Uh, I think unarguably was probably the one of the leading quail researchers in agricultural systems, especially in the southeast. And uh, yeah, so I, I emailed him and said, I want to work for you. And he didn't respond ever. And so I emailed him <laughs> five or six more times. And uh, colleagues told me to move on, apply somewhere else. And I just stayed persistent. And eventually one day he called me and said, hey, you want to come work for me? And I'm like, absolutely. And it's and that's, that's all it was. Yeah. I've never worked directly for him, but I still consider him a... Uh, mentor and he's a really good mentor. Yes, um, yep. It's been very. It was it was the crowning achievement of my career to be able to work for him not once but twice and uh, definitely sent me on a path that, that that was very fortunate for me. Yeah, he's actually. I'm going to get him on the show. Uh, he doesn't know it yet, but we have to go to a conference that's four hours away together, and so for that whole car ride, I'm going to get him on the show. 
that will be fun. Yeah. He, yeah. He, he knows way more than I do. Yeah, he's like an encyclopedia of information. I think he has a photographic memory. Mm-hmm. Uh, he would never admit that, but I think he does. Yeah. And of Farm Bill Policy as well. He's got like the whole history memorized of Farm yeah. Bill Policy. Well, he was fortunate when he started in quail research was when the 85 Farm Bill. So the first the very true first what we call Farm Conservation Bill. Conservation Farm Bill. Yeah. So he's he's been involved ever since. So yeah, he's 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 been there from the beginning. Yeah, he he is going to leave an incredible legacy. Um, he already has, and so it'll be exciting to see. I don't think we're going to let him retire though. So I don't, I don't think he wants to. <laughs> I think we got ten more years with him. At least. Um, okay. So how long specifically have you been in the upland birds? Then how long have you been into quail? A decade. Professionally, decade? or just into them. Research-wise, professionally, Research-wise, a decade. Yeah. Okay. And so uh, tell our listeners who are like me, you know, because we'll probably have some folks that are listening in like, love quail. You don't have to tell me about them. I already know about them. But we're definitely going to have some folks that are naive like me and don't know a lot about quail. Sure. Why is quail conservation important? Quail are essentially one of the best indicators in southern agricultural ecosystems for ecosystem health. If you have quail on a farm, you're doing something good. If you don't have quail on a farm, you're like most people, and it doesn't mean you're a bad farmer by any means. It just means the, the agricultural landscape has been very uh, not good for quail for a long time. But historically, quail responded very well to kind of turn-of-the-century farming as, as, as the Industrial Revolution first was getting, getting going. So quail like agriculture when there is some non-crop habitat around, some non-crop vegetation. So quail are linked to agriculture. You, you can't separate quail from agriculture. Historically in this country, they're just a part of it. And we used to have a lot of them. Even in Mississippi, I had a guy tell me that DeSoto County, Mississippi, used to have was one of the best quail hunting destinations in the country. And it's hard to believe because mm-hmm. you go to DeSoto County, Mississippi now, and you question where a quail would even go. Uh, so they're important to agricultural because they're a part of the historical framework of agriculture in the U.S. And... They're a terrifically interesting bird from an ecological standpoint. Uh, they're just fascinating, and they've hung on through this major agricultural intensification we've had since essentially the late 1890s. And they've disappeared in some areas, but they're hanging on in others, and it fascinates me that they're there. Um, I've heard uh, another colleague in Texas refer to them as the canary on the prairie, mm-hmm. where you know when you hear them, it's good. When you don't hear them, there's more you can do. So. I think they're a good uh, model to talk about conservation in general because anybody who's worked for quail and agricultural knows you put a little bit of grass in the landscape, good grass, and quail respond really quickly. Uh, in the Mississippi Delta, it, it baffles me when we when we get ag conservation on the ground that's quail habitat, how quickly quail respond. So they're they're hanging on and they're a great species to study and a great species that a lot of farmers remember hunting as children. And they really like the idea of getting them back. So they're a great way to motivate people to do conservation. Yeah, I, I like a few things about that. Um, Does that you, know, mean you don't like the other thing? No. I mean, no, the other things I all agree with, but there are a few that I particularly want to re, re, retouch on. Um, your mention of intensification I think is really important because we're not going to move away from agriculture intensification. The, po- the global population is growing. That's going to be a continued trend. But I do think most folks can agree on that we're going to shift to sustainable intex- intensification um, just out of because we have to. Necessity, because there's, yeah, yeah re- based on um, reducing the amount of inputs we put in to make farming more profitable and and to sustain the resources that we require to farm, which is energy, water, soil, all those different things. 
Um, and then you touched on something else. Oh, how quickly they respond, which I also think is important because most folks that come into these types of conversations that can sometimes be polarizing, they think it's either doom and gloom or it's, it's two-sided when in fact our ecological systems are incredibly resilient. And I think that's an important point, point to make that even if we don't get it all right, right immediately, uh, there's so much opportunity to to improve the sustainability of our landscapes and it's incredible just like human systems how quickly our ecological systems respond yeah there there's no doubt that we shouldn't give up hope on bob whites yet there's there's a lot of hope and potential in ag systems now there are some areas where quail have been gone for so long they don't respond quickly but in the mississippi delta they do and if you've been to the mississippi delta there's not a lot of quail habitat around there's not quail, a lot of grassland <clears throat> quail are really hanging on uh, I used to joke with a guy years ago that they must live in the ditches in, until somebody, you know, puts more grass on the ground. But they're there, and there's a lot of benefit that can the, to the farmer and to the quail from managing for, for quail and agriculture. And now I would imagine, like most scientific disciplines, once you get into, you know, the expert circles around the country or around the world, it's a small group of folks, right? So the, I'm, sure the, I'm sure the quail research... Um, cohort is just like that where you kind of start to know everyone that's in the game and where the best quill um, landscape habitats might be around the country so Mississippi may not be the mecca for that where would you say the best quill habitat is around the country and maybe not in quality, just, you know, in, in number of quail, where you'll find the most quail around yeah, the country. Yeah, so the, the highest sustainable densities of quail occur in South Georgia and Northern Florida in a region we call the Red Hills. It's, uh, it used to be longleaf pine. It was converted uh, mostly to cotton farming, and now most of it's been put back into loblolly shortleaf and some, some longleaf pine. But they sustain the highest quail densities in that region. It's 400,000-acre landscape. Most of it's in private ownership, and it's managed continuous, continuous for the most part. Okay. I mean, there's some ag intermixed, but it's mostly managed specifically for, for Bob White. Uh, Texas can have incredible quill numbers, uh, but it really depends on if it rains or not. So in wet years, they have great quill numbers. In dry years, they really plummet. There's parts of Missouri that have tremendous quill numbers in agricultural systems. Uh, but it, it's, it's hard to compare because in an agricultural system, you can't have the quail density you would have in a contiguous forest that's managed for quail because a lot of acreage is dedicated. Well, it's just the disturbance is good, but it's a lot of the acreage is dedicated to row crops. Mm -hmm. But you can't have sustainable quail numbers in working agriculture, and we see it all the time. I, I was on a farm in Missouri uh, two Januarys ago that had incredible quail numbers considering it was a working ag farm. And there's there's a farm in West Point, Mississippi that I work on that has sustainable quail numbers, and it's a working farm. So it mm -hmm. can be done. It just requires some science and some, some, some technology and a little bit of artistic touch. So on those, on those lines, if I'm a landowner, whether uh, I have my land just for recreation or if I'm farming, so it's production land, but I want to have a little more conservation on it, what are the critical elements that I need for good quail habitat? The, the short answer is cover. Okay. Uh, but it's got to be good cover. Mm -hmm. uh, a hardwood tree line is not quail cover. So historically, quail existed in agricultural, kind of what we used to call the fence rows and the kind of the, the odd areas. But those areas, have, a lot of them have been created just plowed under and farm because we farm most acreage we can now. But even the old fence rows or shrub lines are now tree lines and mm -hmm. they're mature forests, which is not good for, for quail. Quail need three things. 
they need some native grass, native warm season grasses, you know, the weed bunch grasses we call them. They don't like fescue, tall, uh, Bermuda grass, or hay grasses too thick. So they need good grass, and they need about a third good grass, a third annual weed communities. We call that brood habitat for the broods, and then they need a third shrubby cover, which is you know you're a little thicket here and there to hide during the winter. To it's incredible how often you don't hear the word thicket anymore. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have any thickets. We anymore. don't. Not in agriculture. Those thickets are now in corn. So if you have a third, a third, a third, we call it the rule of thirds, a third annual weed communities, a third native grasses, and a third cover, and you have them interspersed in a way where a bobwhite can get to all of them without covering too much uh, open ground where hawks can eat them, you can have sustainable quail numbers. So it seems like a, a lot of that cover is just based on reducing predation, allowing uh, nesting habitat, and good cover for nest s- survival. Good cover for nest survival, good cover for broods to survive, and somewhere to hide during the winter during hawk migration or when predators are coming to get them. Everything on the planet just about eats a quail if given the opportunity. Uh, so predators have always been around. That's always been the case. But historically, we had enough good habitat in the landscape that a lot of things ate quail. But, I mean, even the best, even in the place I was talking about, the Red Hills, 80% of the quail are going to die every year. Yeah, that's a high. That's a standard, that's a high but number. it's but they they offset that with incredible reproductive output. I mean, they can have two to three broods a year. They'll nest oh, wow. multiple. Well, they'll nest two to three times a year, and usually can get one or two broods hatched off. So they can they can respond. They they've evolved to respond to yeah. high predation by having really high reproductive output. So, I did not realize that their reproductive output outputs were that high. Yeah, that's how they offset their annual mortality. And people, when we tell people eighty percent, they're like, "Oh my goodness, how can you sustain that?" They've been doing it for forever. Uh, they're really good at making chicks. Mm-hmm. So what do you see as the low-hanging fruit for landowners in, a, in any region, or particularly, I guess, in Mississippi, because we're, mo- we're here, we're most familiar with these landscapes, to improve quail habitat? You know, The low-hanging fruit is usually the easiest stuff to, to do, or the most basic, fundamental things. The most basic in agricultural system? Yeah, let's say agricultural system. So in a mm-hmm. farming, in a, in a row crop system, yes. the most low-hanging fruit, in my opinion, is finding the lowest yielding areas on a farm and if, if it's economically beneficial converting those to quail habitat and you can get that done through farm bill conservation programs that's kind of the lowest hanging fruit because everybody wins there hopefully if you do it right the farmer makes more money we get quail habitat on the ground so that's a win-win for everybody the kind of the second lowest hanging fruit is if you've already got uh, some land that you're not like if, if you've got uh, cattle grazing land or if you're producing hay converting some of that from these exotic forages, Bermuda grass, tall fescue, bahia, to native warm season grasses that are actually adapted to these local soils, and it's what was here originally. Uh, you can still graze them, you can still cut hay on them, but you can also get some, some marginal bobwhite habitat out of them. So <clears throat> it, it can diversify the, the forage system for a producer. Uh, and, you can, and a lot of these native grasses are more drought tolerant anyway, mm-hmm. which in Mississippi no one's worried about drought right now because it rained pretty much all fall and winter. But every, we often have droughts, and these right. exotic forage grasses have a shallow root system. They, they're not well adapted to drought, whereas these native warm season grasses are. And we've actually, there's been a ton of research to show that uh, daily weight gains for cows are actually higher with a native grass than with an exotic grass. So those are kind of the two bigger things we could do. And then in pine systems, just thinning and burning pines, uh, prescribed fire. And to not, open up the understory. Open just up allowing. the understory and create some vegetation that's good for quail. Um, we don't burn as much because of the shorter rotations we do for a lot of pine trees and that's because the timber market's challenging but a little prescribed fire goes a long way with bobwhite they're called the firebird for a reason oh i didn't know that yeah, they're, they're, they were 
they're sustained through through the periodic seasonal fires that, that this part of the country generally had. So this particular operation that you do a fair bit of your research on right here, out, right next to Mississippi State University, um, they also have an economic enterprise associated with their quail populations, do they not? Yeah, they actually, they've done enough. It's a 5,500-acre farm. Half of it's a cow-calf operation. The other half's row crop. Uh, the landowner was interested in quail because he historically had quail, but he also had a lot of other conservation needs. He had some major erosion problems from overgrazing. Uh, streams were full of mud and dirt, and the water was muddy. And so he actually converted 23% of his farm, 23% of the acreage, is in some type of farm bill conservation practice with, for a variety of things. Most of it's for quail. A lot of it's just for stream bank stabilization or to reduce erosion. And quail responded very appropriately, and he has, uh, for a working ag farm, has you know, a good number of quail, more more so, drastically more so than anybody in that county or in that region because of what he's done. But he sells hunts. He sells deer hunts. Uh, uh, and it's quite lucrative for him. It's very lucrative. In fact, uh, the conservation buffers he put in for, for Bob White, uh, the deer use them tremendously. And mm-hmm. uh, so they've got a lot of, uh, they shoot a lot of deer in kind of what we call quail habitat. The deer like to bed in them, put fawns in them, they tell me. And so there's, he, he makes money off that. He sells rabbit hunts. Uh, we, quail habitat is often really good rabbit habitat, so people come and they'll put beagles on the ground and uh, put more rabbits up in an afternoon than most people can believe for that landscape. He sells dove hunts. Uh, I think this year they're selling turkey hunts. So there's a, there's a lot of economic opportunity when you create wildlife on a property, uh, either through a lease value if you just want to lease it to somebody or through you know, kind of a guide system like they do. Which I think is just another another point to mention that there's plenty of folks out there, who uh, who farm and, and and you know are, are profitable that way, but then you know once they get out from under any any debt they might have, they're able to make uh, their passion part of their profitability as well through through these type of uh, you just, the hunting community knows how much you'll pay to go hunting, but sometimes outside of the hunting community, sure. folks are not aware. Uh, of the multi-billion-dollar industry that that um, hunting and fishing is, uh, yeah, big time. And it, hunting hunters are often, you know, public lands often sometimes crowded, and people want to get out and get away from people. And private lands the way to do that, and it's private land, so there's often a fee associated with that. And I encourage landowners to to monetize that 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 access absolutely and take advantage. And if you do good wildlife management for quail, you'd be amazed how many older farmers would pay just to put a bird dog on the ground and have a have a, a bird dog point a covey and see a covey rise. The ones I talk to honestly don't care if they shoot into it or not. Mm-hmm. They just want to be able to see a covey on their farm or somebody's in that area <clears throat> and and remember what it was like when they had them. And there's a premium you can charge for that. Uh, I know guys that would pay a, a lot of money to just have a place to work their dogs. Right. Uh, you know, that's the, the upland bird hunters have, are declining tremendously in the southeast because we lack a lot of quail to go hunting on and mm-hmm. uh, so there's and you know the pen raised birds are out there and you can do that but everybody knows a dog you'd rather work your dog on wild birds mm-hmm. and so there's there's definitely an economic opportunity there yeah that's funny we're i'm taking my class out there tomorrow so that, and we're going to see them burn which will be fun but i was out there a couple weeks ago and we were we were watching them burn and the gentleman next to me was like hey 
look, I see a pheasant. Look at that pheasant. And, you know, being from Minnesota, I'm like, there's not a pheasant here. (laughs) There's not a pheasant. And I totally forgot that they also do some pheasant. (laughs) Yeah, they do some some pheasant tower shoots (laughs) and some things. that. uh, It was indeed a pheasant. Yeah, (laughs) they've they've got one there. Actually, he survived the hunt. I think they're feeding him some corn around the house it's or something. He's like a pet. He's like pet a pet, it. yeah. So they, they do they do some other things like that where they release birds to, to hunt. And that's really uh, just to, you know, there's there's a market for that. Mm-hmm. And, um, so, but like I said, so there's those options. But just by doing good quail management, you can benefit. I mean, deer hunters, let's be honest, deer hunters are the majority of the hunters. They're, they're 50% of, the, of the, the revenue from license sales, if not more. And deer can respond very well to quail habitat because there's a lot of stuff that quail like that deer eat as well and will bed in yeah i think that's a good point because <coughs> even you know a lot of a lot of the time when you're doing this specific conservation for quail there are so many other ecosystem services uh, as you mentioned before that go along with it uh, absolutely whether it's pollinator habitat improved soil structure infiltration um, improved water quality alongside that uh, because it's essentially the same as any water quality conservation practice that would be uh, a buffer, grassed waterway, all of these different names we have for putting vegetation on the ground Absolutely. to filter water. And quail just happen to be the thing that a lot of, <coughs> excuse me, a lot of farmers are really excited about, even though they may care about water conservation. Mm-hmm. The quail is more exciting to them, so we can actually sell it as a quail benefit, which it is, but there's all these other ancillary benefits that, you know, everyone, society is going to reap. Yeah, you have it easy having like a species, like a cute species. <coughs> you know, not everybody cares about like a water droplet. It's a delicious species. But too. if you have a cute quail or a panda at a global <laughs> scale, like a panda, I always think of uh, as a major symbol of conservation. But yeah, not everybody's into my water droplets, but we are on our way. <laughs> <laughs> well, we just need to show them that quail, show them that quail benefit, quail conservation benefits water quality. Next this year, when is that research going down? Yeah, we need to write a grant for that. That's <coughs> right. All right, so I have one more question. I know you've got to get out of here. Um, so in general, we do have much fewer la- quail in the landscape than we did historically. The populations are declining. Uh, and we do have some environmental and development cha- challenges alongside that, too. What do you see as some of the major challenges in your new role? Because you're going to be continuing your quail c- research. Um, do you see any major challenges ahead? in just on the ground research of quail, given some environmental challenges that we know, whether it's uh, tumultuous weather patterns, heavy rainfalls, swings in temperature, especially here in Mississippi, sometimes it can be, you know, below 30 at night, over 70 during the day, where, you know, we are in our climate controlled houses for small species like this, that, that kind of regulation of body temperature is much more difficult, especially without good cover. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the biggest hindrance to quail research is getting enough quail to do research on. Uh, mm-hmm. That's that's kind of the big challenge. But, you know, I think some of the stuff you're talking about kind of falls under the umbrella of, of climate change. And there's not a ton of research on how we think bobwhites will respond to climate change. There's been a little bit. Uh, there's been some simulations done. But climate change is going to affect every species to some degree. It's going to vary in the intensity of its, of its impact. Uh, but, yeah, in, in the Deep South, we see either too much rainfall or too little. And uh, that, you know, when you get a five-inch deluge right in the middle of brooding season, chicks can literally get washed out and drowned. Uh, Especially if you already have poor infiltration. Exactly. So then you yeah. just have water sitting on the surface. So, right, like in an ag system where you don't have good, there's not an impl- implementation of cover crop or something like that, and the, the, the water's just pouring off the landscape, 
Yeah, that can. I mean, I've seen I've seen big rains, even in really good habitat. Actually, big rains, you know, excessive big rains, actually uh, wash out eggs from a nest, and you see eggs scattered down down the mm-hmm. hill. So there are some challenges there, um, but in general, you know, we we can, there's things we can do to to hopefully to to uh, affect climate change, but on the ground, on individual landowner level, just getting good cover on the ground uh, to to kind of help mitigate some of the, the extremes. You know, right. like if, if a if a nest gets, you know, washed away in a big rainstorm because of, you know, there was not enough vegetation to slow down that water movement, you know, having another pro- area of the property where it's in good habitat so the the bird could re-nest, a quail for instance, could re-nest in a better quality habit. So just having good habitat on the ground is, is the biggest challenge we get for quail in the deep south is just getting agriculture producers to implement some quail acreage uh, mm-hmm. is kind of the biggest challenge. But we're trying to find ways to, to do that that's profitable and, and easy for the farmer. Fantastic. That's exactly what I was looking for. Do you happen to have a lab web website yet? I do not yet. Okay. But there is the Agriculture Ecology Lab that we're going to be historically used here. We're going to be revamping that in the fall. Oh, so. fantastic. So you'll be on that. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> um, all right. Thank you again for coming today. If, you, if our listeners have more information or would like more information, on Dr. McConnell's quail research or any of the research he's done, please feel free to visit the Mississippi State University website, look him up, um, and I'm sure you'll find a wealth of information not only on his scientific publications, but also his extension publications, and very soon all of his ongoing work. And graduate, do you have any graduate students on board yet? I have one right now, and two are advertised now. That's exciting. Oh, okay, so two are advertised. If this, if this podcast comes out in time, you can still apply. Yes, hurry. <laughs> all right, thanks, Mark. Thank you for having me. As always, you can find more information on our website or in the show notes after the show. And we always want to acknowledge and thank our primary sponsor, the Mississippi Natural Resources Conservation Service, for their support of this podcast. Thanks for joining us for Coffee and Conservation. To find out more about the topics discussed, visit the REACH website at reach.msstate.edu or the Mississippi State University Extension Service website at extension.msstate.edu.